And so why I really like uh, techniques, practices and tools around things like OKRs is because it enables us as kind of hunter gatherers who are looking for a visual uh, interaction to be able to go like, oh, okay, cool. I understand the link between what I am building, uh, what the aspiration was at the beginning that we're doing there, and then like, how's it going? It enables us to form that link visually and then to use the data and pull it together, which is really, really important. It's a story. It's a story that we're trying to tell around value and around how what we've built then links to how it's done and what we should do next. What should we put in the sequel? Hi. And welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, Chief Product Officer of GTM Hub. GTM Hub is the world's most powerful platform for objectives and key results, or OKRs. In concept, OKRs are easy to understand, but challenging to execute. Until now, check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Kit Friend is an agile coach, crowd geek, and Atlassian partnership lead for EMEA at Accenture. And despite his enthusiasm, these views are currently officially only his own. In this special episode of the Voices of OKR series, we discuss where it might make sense to apply the waterfall model. And yes, in some cases, this would be a reasonable approach. The many ways to be agile, from seen more rarely currently approaches like lean, to those we should approach with caution, like the Spotify model, and how organizations should be thinking about mapping work to value, data to strategy. Let's jump in. Hey, Kit. Thanks for joining us on the show, Dreams with Deadlines. I'm super stoked to have you on the show today. Hey, Jenny. It's lovely to be here. All right. So let's start with who are you? Who's Kit? Well, I guess officially, so uh, I work for Accenture in our technology strategy and advisory enterprise agility practice, which is a bit of a mouthful. I should caveat everything we say here by saying that the views are my own that I express here, but hopefully that'll be valuable to your listeners anyway. Oh, absolutely. Let's jump into what it is that you do. So uh, I'm an agile coach and Atlassian practice lead uh, for EMEA at Accenture. So I work with agile teams and teams using Atlassian tooling and other kind of stuff. I'm a bit of a tooling and agile geek generally. In fact, I help curate one of our communities of about 1,800 agile geeks globally. So we've got a load of scrum masters, agile coaches, uh, people who would like to be one of those or are struggling with agility. So I work in lots of those areas with our internal teams and with our clients. How did you end up doing this? Yeah, it's one of those kind of, I always love hearing people's stories when you go through and everyone feels like a kind of cascade of accidents. So I, I started off in art design. So my uh, my parents were both at the BBC, um, the British Broadcasting Corporation uh, in the UK. Uh, my mum was my dad's boss in BBC graphics back in what? the you know, 1970s and 80s. Your mom uh, was your dad's so, boss? Yeah. Uh, so okay. d- dubious workplace practices at, <laughs> at that point in time, so clearly. So uh, they were graphic designers, um, mm-hmm. and then uh, my dad went on to be a special ex designer at the BBC. So he made uh, things like Tinky Winky's handbag, various bits of the Daleks and Doctor Who for any sci-fi geeks out there. Whoa! Uh, all that kind of stuff. So it was quite fun. 
So I ended up sort of falling into art college uh, because it sort of felt natural <laughs> as a, a mixed, like, creative thing. So I went to St. Martin's, which if anyone's drunkenly sung Common People by Pulp, you have paid tribute to my education uh, in some kind of small way. <laughs> so uh, I was there for uh, four years, so a foundation and then a, a degree. And I, I guess like lots of people going into creative industries, you kind of start out with this like, I don't know what sort of creative I want to do because like secondary school level uh, or high school level education in the arts is like so narrow and you don't get Mm -hmm. to appreciate all the different disciplines. So when I, after my first year, I thought I was going to be maybe a sort of jeweler, like silversmithing uh, and that kind of stuff. And then I took a degree degree that no longer exists with the most amorphous title ever, which I think prepared me for life in agile and consulting, which is, uh, so my my full degree title is uh, BA on art design and environment artifact pathway. Um, what is uh, that? <laughs> so, uh, I think it, it, was a, it was in retrospect, it was a lovely experiment. It's, it's all those things sound like a good idea at the time, don't they? So they they put together a bunch of people who are trained to be architects, a bunch of people being trained to be spatial designers, so sort of mm-hmm. interior design, um, spatially kind of things. And then oh. Artifact was like this third of the course who designed sort of objects but weren't product designers, and I was one of those people. Um, but it, it, in retrospect, it's sort of lined up with like what I've done now because I, I increasingly worked on organizing groups of people to do things. I actually spoke to my university career service, which I, I never had thought about doing, uh, despite the all the clear kind of sensibleness there. And they were like, well, you should be a consultant. Uh, like, you, you, like, you should be a consultant. Yeah, you, you, like, you, you, you have no definite role, but you kind of like fixing problems. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so I can't remember how many I applied to, but uh, but but thankfully for my various bits of experience, Accenture accepted me. And I, I went into the the big kind of generic pool of um, graduates, what we call analysts. Um, right. And then my first project was at UView, which was an amazing experience. So we were building a, an online uh, TV platform in the UK. I learned about Agile for the first time. So we had a team ah, running Kanban and Chrome and things. Okay. And I had lots of uh, local to, to learn from. Uh, I encountered Jira for the first time. So like mm. I, right at the beginning, like Jira has shaped my career and been a constant companion. Uh, and then I went through a series of mainly broadcast kind of projects. Uh, okay. And in each of those, they were, I mean, the, I think the creative industries probably embraced Agile before a lot of other uh, sectors in my experience. So um, in each of those, I learned and evolved and was able to encounter other people with far more agile knowledge than me um, that were able to learn from and do that. So, yeah. And then uh, I guess probably about two years ago, I sort of transitioned from being deployed on mainly kind of single projects, delivering things and working on delivery stuff to coaching our teams and and our clients. So I moved to being a sort of more of a shared agile coach and tooling specialist, helping out people on a variety of accounts and areas which is kind of what where got me to GTM Hub and meeting you and all people like that. Because I, I, I guess I'm, I'm always interested in ways that we can help people with tools, techniques, practices, whether it's technology or just like helping people organize themselves better. I'm mm. really, really interested in, in doing that. that. I mean, goodness, that's quite a journey. Yeah, <laughs> Quite I, uh, 10 years, right? So like, the, yeah. Pretty amazing. And it comes to so, summarize. And I, I guess along the way, I mean, you learn from everything else uh, as well in your life, right? But um, I've been a martial artist for well, almost 18 years now, something like that. Wow. So, so I do a martial art called Sanjuro, which has a big influence on uh, on my practices. I always find it interesting. Like it, it's it's really common, I, I found in Agilist, to have a martial art on the side that they're 
kind of doing. Are you serious? Wrestling. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're going to just start asking people then. You're it's agile. It's really right common. Now? And it, like, I, it overlaps wow. with like the whole like shuhari and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's wild. What? Okay. Yeah. That, that's really cool. <laughs> that's very important. I feel kind of shapes um, things as well. And then I've got uh, two young sons. So I live with my wife in, in West London. So my sons are four and six, which uh, being a dad shapes things a lot as well. Um, yeah. I think it, it's it's been interesting as uh, trying to factor in good work-life balance with my Agile, actually, because I went, I did a six-month parental um, leave at Accenture, uh, which is one of the many amazing things about working uh, working there. But when I came back, I was like, I can't face going back full time. I can't do five, five <laughs> days a week, two days a week. I want to be home with the boys. So um, uh-huh. I had to come to terms with being uh, off on Fridays and like trusting my team to work by the, themselves without me as a scrum master. And uh, I think like we all talk about like uh, like enabling your team to be self-organizing work without you. But having that forcing function was really healthy for me to take my claws out and actually trust the team and uh, 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 stay true yeah. to what we said. So. Um, being a dad has been quite cool to my agility journey as well. That's pretty awesome. We'll start talking through some of this agile stuff because you said you transitioned from being deployed to being on the coaching side. So we're going to just launch into the first question. A lot of folks understand at least the more traditional way of managing projects. And in the industry, that's becoming like not cool and not useful. And everyone's like, that's parochial. Why are you doing this? But certainly we don't want to be too dogmatic. So we'll start here. Under what conditions do you think it's okay to manage a project in a traditional way, like waterfall as an example? Yeah. And I, I, I'm really fortunate to be able to do lots of teaching at the moment, which is a great way of learning um, I, as the, as the cliche goes, but mm. fundamentally with traditional approaches to not just doing projects, but kind of anything. Like I always talk about planning your holidays or, or opening mm. a bakery uh, and, and, and loaves of bread and what have you. Um, but really with a traditional project, you're relying on some things being stable for the duration of you doing that thing whether that's a project or your trip uh, to go to Cornwall or whatever it may be. So I guess the first thing is that you're saying that, okay, I can reasonably say that what I want is pretty fixed. Um, And with quite a level of granularity, right? You're saying, like, Mm. I definitely want to do this. If you're planning a holiday, you're picking the roads, you're choosing your stopping points, you're being relatively definite there, maybe a little bit of variation. um, But fundamentally, the whole whole bargain that we're striking in a project is that you're fixing it. You're like, I know my scope, I know what I want to do, I know which roads I want to drive down. The second one for me is like you're fixing the technology um, or you're fixing the the method of doing the thing or the ingredients that you're you're using for your bakery. Now, if you can say reasonably well that you're able to fix both of those and not just wishful thinking fix, but like actually like commit to it for the duration of your thing, uh, then, okay, you've start, got the starting, the makings of uh, maybe it being appropriate to go about things in a waterfall traditional way. Um, and I, I guess the third aspect that we often say is like, uh, and can you uh, reasonably make the gamble that no external factors are going to impact you? Uh, and Ooh, that's a tough one, right? Because, yeah. I mean, how do you control for that? Yeah. So mm. are you not going to change what you want? Are you not going to change? Like, are, are you certain that the technology is not going to creep up on you and something mm. will go a bit differently? And I mean, I mean, technology in the broader sense there of like, things you can use to make stuff. So like right. when I do carpentry at home, my technology is my hammer and saw and, and <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. but that third one is like, so is, is the market stable enough that you're happy to make that gamble for the duration of what you're saying is going to happen? Mm. Um, 
And those three questions, I think, are really fundamental to you saying like, okay, we're okay to manage this in a traditional way um, or we're willing to take the risk um, because it is all about risk with these things, right? If you have a discussion mm-hmm. with a procurement team or finance or legal or a teams that manage risk, they're, they're coming to you and asking you to fix things and there's a perception that you're decreasing risk by fixing those things in place, by making a promise and that's decreasing risk. Um, and I think really, if you, if you think about those three questions, like, I've rarely seen a project, a program, uh, a journey to Cornwall when I'm driving on holidays that that stood those the test of those three questions. Um, mm, yeah, days. I mean, I, I don't think uh, I'd be really, really surprised if anyone had fixed in their plan that got rubber stamped last summer or in January move entire workforce remotely in March. Right, right. It, it just wasn't there. Right, right. So, and we can't prepare for those kind of things. But I think. With a traditional approach, what you're saying is like, no, I don't need to manage change. Change is a surprise uh, and it's uh, not not common for us. Um, so you're treating change like this anomalous, chaotic thing that comes in and it's an exception. And therefore, you have a complex change request process if that happens. Right. But anyway, let's pretend for a moment that we have those three things and you've ticked all the boxes. You're like, yes, I've uh, got everyone to sign in blood that this is what they want and they're not going to change their minds. Yes, we've picked technology that there is absolutely no chance of changing. Uh, and yes, uh, uh, we are certain that the external factors aren't going to change during the duration of my project. Um, if you can answer all three of those, then it makes sense to uh, put everything in a plan like uh, and like commit everyone to that plan, socialize it, do it there, to uh, make loads of decisions up front, uh, which often lends itself to lots of governance and steering committee meetings. Mm. Um, and at the end of all of that, if everything's been ticked on on that list of things, then the gamble that you're striking is that if you follow all of those to the letter, then you'll get out what you specified at the beginning. Um, right. Now, areas where I've seen that that works okay are like really small things. And and I don't mean like people want them to be small or hope that it's small and simple, but like they scope it small. Yeah. They scope it small. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, and there might be some practicalities. So my, my Mm -hmm. favorite example is from, um, one of my uh, friends, Matt Meckes, and he talks about, uh, digital advertising campaigns and Ah. like with, with building a digital advertising campaign, it's kind of reasonable actually that you could fix it. Because mm-hmm. you're not going to spend like years building it, right? Maybe right. you're spending like four weeks on a build cycle. Now, the technology, yes, it's fast paced and you're using like Facebook ads or whatever, like things where there's lots of change. But for the duration of those four weeks and your relatively short lived campaign afterwards, you can probably take the gamble that, uh, that it will stay relatively fixed. It is a gamble. You're making a decision, but you're kind of fixing those things there. And the market conditions, well, like you're hoping to get it out quick enough that you're that your market research, whether it's from what's now or you're looking ahead to when you're going to launch, is accurate. But right. it's still a risk. Right. Now, I think in Matt's example, what I found really interesting was like, so it, he said, okay, so you can therefore waterfall the build for this digital advertising campaign of four weeks or six weeks, whatever it is. Um, so your client comes in at the beginning, maybe they're a large soft drinks manufacturer or something like, yeah, yeah, yeah I want this kind of personalized campaign where you can put reindeer horns on your picture and post it on Facebook or something at the end. We build it. Now, when you launch it, though, you have this fundamental problem of people don't behave as you want them to. Right. And we know this right. to be true. This is a certainty. And right. so once you launch that product into live, you can't waterfall the maintenance of it. Right? You can't right. you can't maintain and enhance it by a waterfall. And so you then have to dip into a more agile approach or a DevOps mm. approach or SRE or whatever you want to maintain that product and make it continually useful to people. So small things you can potentially waterfall at the beginning, whether they're, uh, whether they're physical or digital, 
if you're willing to make that fix. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so what you're saying is like small projects may make sense if you can uh, satisfy those three things that you've just gone through, right? Basically saying that it's predictable. Like you can predictably understand what it is that you're trying to do, what it is that you're building with, and what it is that the market is trying to say. And if you can say that with some level of certainty that all of these things are predictable and we can account for those as we're planning, then sure, go for it. Yeah. But after the fact, you release this thing, you're not that's no longer predictable because people aren't predictable. You're releasing to humans and we're the most unpredictable things ever. Yeah, and in fact, we kind of oversimplified. Yeah, and in fact, we we somewhat oversimplified the technology bit of that as well, right? Because mm, of course, yeah. it, who builds the, using the tools? Well, those are people as well. And exactly. Like, can you predict right. exactly how your your team of bakers of software developers are going to behave? Well, like really, probably not. Right. I, you, you don't know whether they like your lead developer is going to fall out with the tester after four weeks, and like what well, oh, that's totally. going to lead to your plan, right? So then like then there's obviously a very strong case no matter if you start with a traditional model of when you're doing that maintenance and that upkeep I like to call it hygiene I think it's a similar flavor that you need to be able to adopt some sort of agility in how you approach your work. So let's talk about all the different frameworks that are out there. There is a I feel like there's a ton. Oh, and I remember Right? Could, could you ever have a comprehensive list? I wonder. I yeah. don't. I, I wonder, but I remember you showing me once this wonderful PowerPoint slide, and I was like, "Whoa!" And I saw some of the more old school <laughs> frameworks, and I was like, "Those are old school already." I think you see. I, I try and use the phrase "seen more rarely" uh, these days. Things, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. So let's talk about the ones that aren't used that much anymore. Like, what's what's the stuff that people used to know? And, and are kind of seen rarely nowadays. Yeah. And I think what's interesting when you go through this is it's a, it's a kind of, uh, you then kind of caveat it and come back and loop around, right? Because sure, there's sure. a lot of them where you don't see uh, them badged as that anymore, which we can mm. get to now. But you know, like, aha, but the techniques, the phrases and things have become embedded yeah. in other stuff uh, as we totally. go. Uh, which I guess is good, right? Because if we're doing agile right uh, or, or working right at being value-centered, right? If something worked well, you shouldn't dump that thing, right? There's there's bits of waterfall, which are great ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Involve your stakeholders, uh, get, right. get everything there. Have a plan that's visible to people. You know? <laughs> right. there, are, there are things that work well in traditional project management and approaches, which you definitely shouldn't dump. Um, and the same with the with the agile approaches uh, or or things that we would retrospectively classify as agile uh, that uh, are still true. So normally the sort of ones that we have in that uh, that diagram, and uh, I guess we don't have visuals. Maybe we'll have it in the show notes. But if you're listening, yeah. if, you, if you imagine a big wide umbrella with with four columns under under the uh, under the umbrella's careful protection. So this mm -hmm. first column is the Seymour Rally. Now, um, uh, one that we like to introduce when I'm talking to teams here is Lean, because then you come back to it and invalidate your own uh, classification later. But I see relatively infrequently teams doing things that they would classify as Lean, like Six Sigma kind of stuff now, um, especially in comparison to like if we look at large organizations in the 90s or uh, things are doing Lean. And like, I think it's quite difficult to apply lean to like a single small, like scrum size software team as well, right? The interesting thing though is, of course, the principles of lean uh, are definitely true. Uh, like, like, yeah, the, sure. the fundamental things that we're talking about are part of lean. Yes, totally apply. 
but using it as a framework on its own or an approach on its own is quite difficult um to do at the moment and like we don't hear many people if you compare it to like how often you are asked to provide a scrum team or coach a scrum team um or you encounter a scrum team in organizations you don't see it as often I then link it back normally when we're talking teams to when we talk about scaled methods like SAFE, where you're like, aha, but as you grow, you definitely need, how are you going to manage this? Well, lean portfolio management. Uh, so, so lean comes back. But I think it's always interesting to introduce people to the roots of that kind of way of thinking in the Toyota the Toyota way and like where mm-hmm. it comes from. Um, I also like to use it to help dispel this myth that, that so much of Agile is only applicable to technical teams building software. Because of course, like the roots of lean uh, and, and Toyota where you know, it's physical supply chain manufacturer, right? It's building right, things. Right. Um, and so that's a really good one to kind of level set with people. And then we recommend the Phoenix project and all that kind of stuff to them. So it leans in there. I like to talk about XP as something that I, I rarely see a, a, a pure XP team uh, these days. Um, you do get pockets of it, I've noticed. Uh, I often see people kind of putting XP in as like a test of whether you know what it means. And like, <laughs> kind of, they you up and they're like, oh, what do you think of XP practices? Uh, that kind of stuff. So one of my one of my friends, Lawrence Allen, Laz Allen, who I think he still works at Skyscanner in, in Scotland as, a, as an agile coach. But I remember him talking to me about Scrum and XP from the trenches being like the first book you must read on your agile journey. Oh, wow. So, so I encountered the word XP relatively early. Mm. Um, but we don't see it so much now and I, uh, as a uh, isolated thing where like we're just doing XP. I, I'm always interested when talking with developers in my teams about how they would feel about things like pair programming as well because it doesn't tend to get a good reaction. Uh, well, that practice on its own doesn't tend to get a good reaction from my developers in terms of literally having someone uh, physically sit with you. Yeah. yeah. All virtually now. Um, yeah, I'd be interested, true. actually, I haven't spoken to a team doing XP during remote working and how they find um, that when you're not able to be close to each other. So we see it through there. And then a, a bundle of the other kind of three-letter acronym ones, right? So like RAD, EVO, those kind of things. So we see yeah. them more rarely. I do always reinforce, like, that doesn't mean that they're bad agile though, right? I mean, the, you, just you can less. definitely find uh, yeah. a team where they're, like using one of those or a blend of those like is the right answer for that team. But we we see it come, come up less frequently in conversations in my experience. So I guess the second column that I normally talk about is uh, single team frameworks or single right. team methods, approaches. We say like agile is the mindset, relatively free of debate, people using the mindset word for agile. The, these frameworks or methods or processes and things, though, because that was generated by but in that mm. column, I talk about Scrum and Kanban as the first uh, kind of areas for people to get some awareness of on their Agile journey. I think I wrote this in an article recently that you, you were commenting on uh, in our chats previously. But for me, uh, Scrum is a good place to start your Agile journey, even though it m- might not be the right destination. Uh, so um, in that column, we talk about Scrum. I recommend Scrum for beginners uh, getting to trying to get to grips with Agile because I think having something where there is a, a relatively consumable number of defined roles, practices and things is a good thing for when people are trying to get started. I, I think it's kind of difficult because in agility, we we naturally want to be agnostic, right? We want to say uh, you should grow and evolve and learn and adapt, pick the thing that's best for your team. But it's kind of terrible advice to give to someone to not give them some direct advice on the journey. Okay, that's all good. But if you want to start somewhere, because everyone has to start somewhere, I tell people to start with Scrum because I think that that simplicity, that breadth of adoption, the Mm -hmm. common currency in the industry is is really welcome. And then I like to uh, talk about Kanban in that column as well, because for me, it's sort of, I don't think it's an opposite, but there's a contrast there in like, okay, so Scrum, simple to understand. 
uh, at least to start with, simple structures and things to begin with. Kanban is like the uh, most misinterpreted, confused kind of area in my experience of encountering teams. So if I encounter a team who say they're a Kanban team, I'm like, are you really? Like, let tell me what you think you're doing. This is what I was so surprised about is most people would think that the Kanban, because there's so many tools out there, are, you know, this this thing of to-do, it's in progress and we're done. And if you use a board that has those three columns, you're Kanban team, right? That's not true. Like that's what. Yeah, so I've, I've lost my honky horn around me in the room at the moment, but I have a loud uh, rubber comedy honk horn. And when we're teaching, I go, "So who's been on a Kanban team?" And then you everyone go, raises yeah. their hand. Yeah, yeah. and they're everyone. like, "Oh, so what? What made you a Kanban team?" And the first person who says it's the board gets uh, the honky horn. Now, of course, and you, you're like, you "No, can, yeah. I mean, you can be on a, a Kanban team and be, and be using a board, of course." But like, sure. there's a big misconception that sticking a board with some columns up makes you agile. And, and of, of course, a tool does not make your team uh, agile. I, for a long time, felt super guilty that I hadn't done enough uh, underpinning Kanban training and learning mm-hmm. to be able to like genuinely do that. So uh, one of my colleagues, Andrea Rizzo, taught an amazing first Kanban course uh, stage for me a couple of weeks, yeah, about six weeks ago. So I'm now on my Kanban journey to correct my lack of uh, formal qualification in the area. I mean, there's no recipe for like this sort of team must use this approach to agile right but i particularly like to talk about kanban with teams like legal teams or contact center teams other mm. where, where there is like definitely a constant flow of work and like you look at the team and you're like mm, like would would it be good to try and force you into sprints and like fix time boxes of things probably not uh and yeah, yeah. yeah I, I like to talk about Kanban at the start of the journey with those kind of teams. Um, but I think it's good for people to have awareness of all of these things, right? So then like the third column, I think under that umbrella would be what everyone is like, whoa, that's that's heavy. The scaled frameworks, mm. really big enterprise ones, the safe and the less of the world. If you were to like pick apart what the differences are between that? Because there's like websites and entire conferences and all kinds of people dedicated to this. If you were to kind of distill it, what would you say to an organization saying, we want to go agile transformation and we're looking at safe and we're looking at less. What do we do? Yeah. And I think what's really nice is like, what's the first thing is like read the websites because none of those websites and, and scale frameworks say, take my scaled framework and apply it verbatim to your organization as a down kind of like (laughs) 6,000 people go safe kind of thing. I feel really sorry for the safe implementation roadmap because it's super sensible, right? It says start with single teams, you're going to scale stuff and then experiment, then learn and grow and all these kind of things. But people get very excited by a, uh, definitely full-featured, rich selection of stuff. They're like, right, I want to apply that to my organization um, right. all in one go. And, and there's loads of organizations where safe definitely might be the right answer. Mm. But there's loads of organizations where it's not the, the right answer um, uh, as well. And you need to go on a, a journey to discover which is the case. So when we uh, to go back to your question, though, when, when I'm trying to introduce people at the beginning of their Agile journey, um, so I, I guess the, the order of the columns under the umbrella of my Agile my agile mindset umbrella um protecting us from the waterfall rain uh like is intentional right because you want people to get an idea about the history of where we come from uh like mm. the value of principles like lean and and um and we've come from learned from there 
uh, and then you want them to start with single team frameworks right this is this is intentional no one should go from scaled down and go okay i want to establish a 600 person agile team let me start with that and then worry about the single teams later. If we talk about the, the frameworks that I see most commonly, um, and I guess you'd probably say like all my opinions on this podcast are my own rather than an organization's. But uh, so SAFE is wonderful for provide, well, nobly attempting to provide an answer to or guidance to like every question in your agile journey. And I, to be honest, like even if someone's not asking for SAFE guidance on something, but they're like, oh, what does a product owner do? I'll often go to the SAFE website and give them the article on that component of SAFE and go, look, this is a really well thought out, full featured description of this element of agility. Yes, it's coming from um, the SAFE framework, but I think there's a hell of a lot of hard work that's gone into that to build it out to the extent where I'm kind of like, oh, I wish I had the time and the energy to invest in, in building up some things like that. Now, Safe is super powerful there. It does an amazing job at trying to answer a huge amount of questions um, and putting in place a variety of levels of framework and configurations that can answer a lot of questions there. The natural result of that is that it's easy to get terrified by that amount of content. Um, I imagine it's probably overwhelming. I read through it a little bit and I was like, whoa. thought about almost everything that's what it feels like when you read through it yeah right? and, and like and it and it's iterative right thankfully so yeah. you, you get say yeah, 4.5 4.6 right, right, exactly. did 4.5 i've just done my upgrade to 5.0 so they yeah, mm-hmm. they embrace the fact that they're learning as they go yeah they're, i think they're running safe at safe uh to do things is the that would totally make sense yeah that's interesting to apply the framework on your framework evolution yeah and, yeah, and to be honest about it, right? You're like, okay, like, here's what we think is the next version of this. What do you think? Uh, like, did, did we did we change the wording wrong? And they tweak things, right? So they they move from talking about stretch stretch objectives and stretch goals to uncommitted and that kind of stuff. So, so safe's wonderful, and you have that there, and it might be the the right end destination for people, or it might be the right starting point or the right kind of middle point before they then go and evolve and do something um, else, or they or they refine it, and you end up there as well. So um, you shouldn't ever end up with a static end state that looks like a copy and paste of a image from any of these websites, to be, to be honest. So safe, wonderful there. I've done my certified large scale Scrum less course with, uh, and in fact, um, uh, my Scrum at Scale certified protection are both with Agile Centre in London, who are a lovely training provider. And I think both of those frameworks try and offer a relatively lighter weight approach to scaling um, agility, kind of to, to get a team able to go potentially a bit quicker or with a with fewer things there. Now, that's obviously a compromise, right? Because if you, with SAFE, I can go to the website and drill down into one single point and have specific advice on lean budgeting guardrails uh, and things like that, which is amazing. Um, you won't find that level of detail in less or scrum at scale, and that's intentional, right? Then they're not trying to answer all of those questions. And so it's the one of those awkward answers, right, where it's like, which is the right framework for my organization to end up with? And it's like, well, firstly, it depends. Uh, and secondly, like you shouldn't end up with a fixed copy and paste version of any of those frameworks. Uh, you know, they, they are meant to be there as stepping stones and guidance and balance for you. Um, and if a team, if a large organization is like, how do I do this thing? Well, there's a bundle of answers. But one of the key and awkward bits is like, well, you, you need some coaching from people who've got experience with a few of them that can help you navigate and go like, Oh, awesome. Like 
the the way of organizing things maybe the implementation from roadmap from safe is great but when you encounter something maybe you need to be go to scrum at scale and look at the way they do something and use that as part of your inspect and adapt behaviors to see what's happening so a, a bit of all might be what's the right answer so like be pragmatic about what your organization needs and then what it will even probably i imagine you probably have to gauge the culture of your your staff your teams and what they would be willing to do because ultimately they're the ones who are going to be you know inheriting all of that practice all of those processes and keeping that disciplined order but they otherwise if they don't agree with it or it doesn't make sense for them i imagine that'd be very difficult they might reject it yeah, you get the the culture rejection or the tissue rejection. I often call it with things. Um, yeah, I guess the the common pattern with all of these, whether it's single team or scale models, though, is like you do not need to reinvent the wheel or start with a blank sheet of paper. Right? We've got these recipes. You, yeah, you, you can start with one of those recipes, and and just like when you're cooking, and this was the the crux of uh, of my article this week. Um, so my colleague Rod Dunn talks about uh, baked cod caponata. I talk about uh, baking cakes. Like uh, it is not a good idea to assemble a jumble of ingredients you think might be right and then smoosh them together and see what happens. Use one of these recipes at least as your starting point. Um, so mm. yeah, you know, have a go at running your team in textbook scrum for three to six sprints and see what works and then alter it and tweak Start it. To augment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. but, but starting fresh is just like, it's, it's a crazy waste of things. I mean, you might make up a, a, a an agile framework or a scaled agile framework that, that is amazing and works, but like, how likely, probably unlikely that you're able to make up something that is as good as the cumulative effort of, of huge amounts of people working together. Yeah. I mean, I can see that like if somebody had never cooked before and then you put them in a kitchen and they just start throwing stuff in a pot and they're like, but they're ingredients. It should be fine. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's like the monkeys with typewriters thing, right? Like give them enough time and enough typewriters, enough paper. And yeah, you'll get the complete works of Shakespeare. But like, do you want to make that gamble when you've got the complete works of Shakespeare and you can be like, hey, maybe do a pricey. Uh, yeah. Right. That t- yeah. I mean, so I think from a just a practical standpoint, that makes sense to just kind of trust the pros, people who spend their careers quite literally thinking through how to do this uh, and have documented it and probably run multiple revisions on it. Obviously, as we've seen with SAFE, that they have different even iterations of, of how to go about it. Yeah, I think that that makes sense to not try to piecemeal it from the get go and try to really stick to the script, so to speak, and and then evolve from there to see what will land with your team. Yes. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and that, that neatly lands on the final fourth column of our agile umbrella, um, which is the uh, the don't do this, the heavy monsters, the be really careful column. And like, there's two there's two bits that we normally put in there when I'm teaching uh, courses. So. Uh, one is the making it up as you go along or homegrown uh, kind of thing, which we've just spoken about. So like, don't do that. You, you can totally iterate and improve upon and learn uh, and adapt once you've put in place the, one of the other recipes. Uh, and the other one is the Spotify model. The Spotify model is two YouTube videos from 2014 that um, provide right. a beautiful visual uh, articulation of a combination of like things that the Spotify teams were doing Things that they quite want, they, they wanted to do, ideas they had, like, and it, it's really fascinating to read the statements from uh, Henrik Nyberg and the other coaches involved uh, around that because it's really can take on like Henrik Nyberg and the other agileists involved Spotify are like amazing agileists, right? Like the body of work that they've generated is fantastic, but 
I mean, there's some reason they provided, like, they did not intend for those YouTube videos to be taken verbatim and applied to, like, an insurance company uh, or something there. (laughs) If I told you to take, like, the technical architecture from a Swedish music app in 2014 and apply it to your insurance company in 2020, like, you'd think I was insane, right? Like, I'm like, don't change a thing. Use these videos I produced in 2014 at my lunchtime summary. I mean, I get where you're coming from, and I'm not trying to advocate that the Spotify model is good by any means. But when they look at it and they're like, but Spotify is successful, they're looking at that outcome. Like, well, Spotify is producing stuff that the world is paying attention to and we used to have radio and we used to have Apple Music and we used to have all these other things. And Spotify came out of what felt like nowhere. And then they they shared with the world, this is how we structure our organization with tribes and guilds and chapters. And everyone's like, we want to have that kind of disruption or success in our industry. And so that's what I think had happened is like a company or organizations that might have felt that they were stuck in the past or looking at what feels like a very modern company and they're hearing about agile practices. And here is somebody who posted information, which is rare, right, about the inner workings of our business and how we had tried to do it. And then everyone else is like, well, maybe that would work. Yeah. Maybe we could apply that. And so maybe, I don't know, I'm making a lot of big assumptions here, but I think that that's what had happened. And everyone all of a sudden said, maybe this new novel thing will help save us or trans, you know, push us forward as a business in, you know, a completely different industry if we were to adopt it. Fundamentally, the problem with those YouTube videos is that they're beautiful and engaging and compelling. And they, they kind of make it look easy to do, <laughs> to do uh, uh, what they were doing. Now, and, and there's some problems with that, right? So first of all, is it that they don't describe what they were doing? by the own account of, of Henrik and, and people there, right? They they described this mixture of what they were doing, what they wanted to do, what they thought would, would be there. Much as you or I might summarise things a little bit charitably and with artistic licence when you were talking about your own work and to an audience and you're kind of, uh, and, you're, and you're training some people. There's a, there's a mixture of do as I do and there's do as I say and and that kind of stuff there. So that's the kind of first problem. Now, e- even if we, even if it was like a perfect capture, and it was possible to capture an entire organization's detailed workings in a few minutes in in YouTube, which like, uh, and it's not right. So let, let's <laughs> but, but let's put that aside. If it was possible to do that, um, now, like, should you co- copy and paste? Uh, and there's an article from Evan Campbell. I think titled "Don't Copy and Paste the Spotify Model." Um, but should you copy and paste that onto another organization and assume it will behave exactly the same way? No, you should not. Right? <laughs> and, and there is no accompanying book for like, here's how to implement the Spotify model, the Spotify model implementation roadmap, which does the same thoroughness as the other frameworks to help you think about how to do that. That goes like. Here's how to establish your guild. Think about whether the people are here. Right? Those things don't exist because they weren't intended to. Right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's no thought. Maybe it could be, uh, but like fundamentally, it, it's not there. I mean, I was, I think, I was told there was one uh, interview where Henrik talks about how what they were doing at Spotify Model was in fact much closer to Scrum at scale, um, but wasn't called that when they were doing things there. Now. The other thing is like, so Amazon's another successful company, right? Now, if right. I went back to Amazon in my time traveling agile machine uh, to 2014, and I was like, ha ha, I shall steal the technical blueprints for Amazon's web services in 2014. And then I came back to 2020. If I applied the technical blueprints from the way that Amazon works in 2014 
to my new team now and was like, ta-da, I never expect to achieve the same as this other company. Like, it just wouldn't work, right? So we, mm. we can't assume that going back to a, a, a set of now relatively antiquated but still beautiful videos can be applied <laughs> without any adaptation and context. And then if you go like, oh, how am I adapt them and learn to apply them? The answer is use one of these other frameworks, right? The like Scrum at scale or something. Yeah. And, but the and what I when you encounter a team who are enthusiastically adopting Agile or enthusiastically saying that they're doing the Spotify model. Now, obviously you shouldn't have the same kind of discussion that you and I have just had, right? Where you're wrong. It doesn't exist just due to YouTube videos. But I, I think what is really important is to acknowledge what they found exciting and interesting and compelling about about that model. Is it that they find it scary to think about these frame, these these formal frameworks? You know, but what is the bit of the Spotify model that made them compelling? And then you need to help them understand how to use properly uh, embedded frameworks, tools, practices, all this other family of stuff to to try and uh, serve those things that they wanted to achieve. Uh, and you know, maybe talk to their actual teams as well. You know, like. Do your developers agree that that's what they need? Uh, do, do, do the people who are building uh, your graphic design portfolios agree that that's the way that they want to work and, and help them on that journey? Because um, fundamentally, like, it's never as easy as watching a video and then saying, okay, cool, I can do that in my company, right? The, the difficult journeys that release the most value and enable people to do things are always difficult and take time. You can't just copy and paste something and expect to be successful. I feel the same way about OKRs and the one video from Google trying to teach everyone, right? Everyone's watched that video if you try to learn about OKRs. And if you watched it, I mean, it's a great video, but trying to implement that across uh, a company, organization, or enterprise is proving to be very difficult for similar reasons. Let's let's move, on, I guess, to the topic at hand, I feel like, because I would be remiss to, to pass over this because we've talked about this. So then we've got all of these teams hopefully practicing some recipe of agility and a framework that exists that would be reasonable, whether it be for a single team or they're starting to scale it out uh, via, let's say, Scrum at Scale, Less or Safe. Trying to connect the delivery of whatever it is that you're trying to make and the value stream and then the delivery of value to the customer and to the organization, trying to piece together that data story. Can you talk about like how that's happening? Like why this is super important? Because we're moving from a hopefully where all of us are really excited that we shipped something. That's what we used to get super excited about. To we actually produced an outcome that's really great and that needs to be measured and needs to be monitored and all that stuff. We are seeing that transition. It's super important. It's showing up in SAFE where they start talking about OKRs and how you need to build that out as part of something you're going to think through as you're aligning all of your delivery trains behind, right? Can you talk through about the importance of data and like how teams should be thinking through this? Yeah, and in in the team that I currently uh, work with, that we that we support uh, other teams coaching, we we talk about five critical skills that everyone needs to have to to be able to be successful in the, the modern digital world with things, right? So, so uh, first one is design thinking. So, like, are you are you sure that you're building the right thing for that? Like, are you, <laughs> have you started the kind of problem solving there? And I, I guess. Uh, I say we start with design thinking, but the the thing is like there's not a phase based uh, sequence of 
of things that one should move through when you're thinking about how to be successful, right? These are all complementary skills and, and patterns. So, but design thinking and the, and the disciplines there are really important. Um, and significantly, design thinking is now badged and part of the icons in, in the latest iteration of the Scaled Agile framework, right? So it's acknowledged as a key part of doing that. Um, second one we always talk about uh, is Agile. So like, uh, and use a proper recipe and framework and what have you for that as part of things. Uh, the third one for me is like data fluency. So are you using actual data to feed in the decisions that your team is making? And that data is important in various different ways. There's kind of output-based data of like how many features is my team delivering? How many story points are we delivering? How many bugs are we fixing? Uh, how many errors are being created in live? There's kind of things there. But the the more thorny and difficult one that we're going to come back to, I'm sure, is like the outcome-related data, the benefits mm. and stuff. Mm. That feeds into a whole other skill, me, which is about value creation. It's about being laser-focused on value and like working out that, should we really do this thing? And then once you've done the thing, like, did it achieve what you wanted? And so few teams are able to really answer those questions. They can answer the output-related metrics of like, yeah, my team's faster, more predictable, uh, doing that right. stuff. But it is much more difficult to say, cool, we've launched this new recommendations engine. Was it worth it? Like six months later, did we achieve what we wanted? And then should we build V2 or should we should we pivot and not, and not do that anymore? So it's more difficult. And that means that we all, uh, no one argues that you should produce these benefits statements of varying degrees of granularity, right? In Waterfall, we argue you need a benefits case at the beginning. In all of our right. agile models, you say you need a value statement, clear value. But right. it's still not simple to do, right? Um, and OKLs can help with that, which I'm sure we'll come back to. And then the last area, uh, and championed in my uh, kind of local by the amazing Harriet Patience uh, Davies, is, is storytelling. So can you create a compelling story around what you're doing to enable people to engage with it? And with the Spotify model, they did that amazingly, right? They, they did mm-hmm. incredible storytelling um, yeah, and yeah. people to engage with the model. But we need to think about how to use storytelling as part of what we're doing on our teams as well to enable people mm. to engage with that. And so those five areas are, are really, really important. Uh, going back to the, the data lens on things, though. So, so cool. Uh, we've used our lovely design thinking skills. We're able to ensure that we're not building uh, a faster horse rather than the car. We're building the car now uh, in, in, in the Ford Motor Company and 19, whatever it was. So we, we, we started on the right kind of approach for what we're doing there. Uh, we've got our Agile framework. Maybe we picked Scrum at the beginning. We're starting to do that um, as we go through. Uh, we've got some data flowing in there, but we need to tie these things together to, to be able to tackle this nebulous value thing, right? Because everyone right. will agree that value is a sensible thing to do, but then everyone will kind of like quietly put away the value tree that they made at the beginning of their project uh, and program, uh, file it away maybe as a PDF on a SharePoint somewhere, and then they'll get on with doing their work and get distracted uh, and not come back to it because it's difficult to tie those things back together, right? And when I talk to people about the, the critical role of a product owner on a on Agile team, technical Scrum team, I think being a good product owner, uh, and you're a product owner, so you can validate hopefully, is really difficult, right? Because we're investing you with the accountability to anoint these ideas with a notion of value and guide the team towards the value like the, the team wants to to build valuable things of course but people naturally want to get on with the thing that they're good at and kind of be there so they need some help to to be pointed towards that value and be able to achieve it and then to be able to like work out whether it whether it happened or not right when you defined mm-hmm. that feature did it was it as good as you expected if great yes let's build more of that if no let's you know, do we kill it off? Do we change it? Uh, what, what do we do with those things? 
And the thing is, it's really simple to say, let's let's focus on value and let's bring in data. Um, it's much more difficult to actually build that into the way that your team works in a maintainable fashion where it's easy for people to access. And we're, we're a visual species, right? People need to see compelling visuals to understand stuff. And so why I really like uh, techniques, practices and tools around things like OKRs is because it enables us as kind of hunter gatherers who are looking for a visual uh, interaction to be able to go like, oh, okay, cool. I understand the link between what I am building, what the aspiration was at the beginning that we're doing there. And then like, how's it going? It enables us to form that link visually and then to use the data and pull it together, which is really, really important. It's a story. It's a story that we're trying to tell around value and around how what we've built then links to how it's done and what we should do next. What should we put in the sequel? So if we talk about like pragmatic steps, I guess the the first and the easiest thing to say, but the most simple is like, don't try and do it yourself. Like get get an expert in to help you things like whether it's in your organization or someone externally, right? There's bundles of people who've done really hard thinking. Now, that thinking might not be directly applicable to your team. You might not be able to copy and paste it, but you can probably find a really good starter around things. So one of the key things I do when we're, we're trying to help a team start up is we go, okay, cool. Have you got a product owner? Has that product owner been trained? Uh, and it's mm-hmm. distressing how frequently they can tick both of those boxes, right? Because like, mm-hmm. it, it, if you, we were asking it around something else, uh, okay. Here's a car. Have you done your 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 driving test? Have you done things? Those are fairly basic questions to answer. And if someone can't tick those, you wouldn't let them drive that car, right? Uh, <laughs> the potential for damage would be huge. So I, I think having a strong discipline of product ownership, product management uh, in an area is really, really important at the start of that value-centered journey. And then enabling mm-hmm. those people to access a body of thinking uh, and guidance, uh, whether it's OKRs or just like the whole area of, being, of value um, is really, really important. Now, I guess various different areas are more or less formalized in how they approach things. There's a lot of formalization certification badges around this agile thing. Right? Um, I think that we're still not there yet in terms of OKRs and value in it being crystallized so much in in like a thing where I, I'm like, cool, I'll go and do value course 101, then 102 and, and that kind of journey. Right. And, you know, I'll take the OKR certification here. I mean, they probably are uh, one slating around, but it's not quite as, as easy. I think I spoke to uh, one of my friends, uh, Greg is a, a data scientist and he was saying there's a similar kind of problem in data science at the moment in that it's not quite as crystallized as a, a discipline mm. at the moment. So there's a bit more ambiguity, which makes it a bit more difficult if you're trying to, to, to work out where you're going to go. Yeah, Greg Detra, lovely data scientist. So I, I think the same is true with OKRs, but there's definitely things you can start with, right? And like mm. part of that is the thinking. Like there's communities of people around uh, OKRs, KPIs, value-centered thinking that you can engage with. And then part of it is is using these tools and methods to help you do it. And that means whether it's a digital tool uh, or it's a process uh, and a practice for doing things there. And there are companies that you can uh, look at whether it's Google, as you referenced, or other places where you go, okay, cool, let me start by looking at the way that they approach doing this and see if that's applicable to my team or not. Again, don't want to copy and paste it if it's like Google's approach to OKRs, but you can start with there as a basis um, and try and be influenced by it as you go. 
And I think, in fact, if we look at a good tool, whether it's GTM Hub or something else, uh, uh, and you're like, okay, how did a good tool should help you formalize those questions? Um, probably accompanied by a person to guide you, but it should help you phrase and go on that journey so you can get towards it. Um, one of the things I don't like is when people try and do this in PowerPoint uh, or or a whiteboard, uh, kind of an, any sort of whiteboard tool, because you're like, uh, you're just going to lose the data, right? There's no there's no actual depth to that data and it gets lost after the workshop and then it's part there. I think it's absolutely fine to use something uh, like a whiteboarding tool to do the initial engagement around like what my ROKRs be, how does this link up to our strategies and value? But then you have to put it in something where you can bring the data in to go back to our, our last point that you asked, right? You have to link these aspirations, these strategies with data and ideally to a, like a, a real source of data, right? Can you, can you say we've got a, uh, this OKR that translates into this KPI that goes it back into the the metric. And then can we tie that to the uh, the Google Analytics endpoint that we've got that gives us the unique page hits for this thing? So you don't have this horrible scenario that we've all seen where teams commit to a benefits case of a story or a feature or an epic or a project. They deliver the thing and then everyone forgets to measure it. <laughs> and then it sounds like, you're like, that thing we launched, how did it do? And you're like, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Like, like, yeah, it's great. It's great. We, we delivered it. Slammed. Uh, you you want to make sure that you are actually tracking that stuff afterwards. And if you can put in place a framework, a set of processes and tools to help people define that value, help people define the way that they're going to measure it, and then actually make sure that you don't have to remember to manually track it, but you, you put something in place, which just means that the metrics that you said you were going to measure against kind of flow through. Now, maybe you were wrong as well about like what was the meaningful thing to measure. But you know what? If you've put in place a proper agile way of working, if you've put in place one of these frameworks, one of these recipes, if you've got the agile mindset nailed, that's okay too, right? Because you can admit that you, you need to update the way that you're measuring things, the way that you're forming things, and then iterate that. I think the way that a lot of teams using OKRs have a kind of quarterly cadence for refreshing them is really, really healthy because of that. Personally, I don't think it's massively practical to refresh all of your OKRs every two weeks, say. But like mm-hmm. quarterly definitely feels achievable. And like w- whether it's with safe program increments or like the natural quarterly cycle of budgets and things, quarterly feels about right for, for teams, especially larger teams, to do sort of strategic thinking refreshes. I think if we think about the contrast between like a waterfall organizational approach where there's this massive weight on an annual planning cycle versus uh, more of a rolling horizon uh, where people are kind of given a polite nudge every quarter to reflect on things and build it back further. I I think it's really important. Thanks, Kit. So we're going to switch to some quick fire questions, if that's good with you. Yeah, let's do it. What do you appreciate most about your team? Uh, I think the ability to teach me. I love feedback from my team uh, and being pleasantly surprised I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always pleasantly surprised when people teach me things that I didn't know I need teaching about. What's the greatest, what was your greatest dream and its associated deadline? I always wanted to be a dad. So I, yeah, I can't remember not wanting to be a a dad. So having little people to provide extra meaning to my world was always there. Uh, I don't think I had a fixed deadline in mind to things, uh, to be honest, for that one. But I guess I kind of I felt like I, I'd kind of done with being just me relatively early in my 20s. And so I yeah, I wanted little people around with things. So my greatest achievement, joint achievement, uh, not not done on my own, fairly obviously, was having little friends. What's your idea of the perfect company to work with as a consultant? I kind of think that it's lots of 
So <laughs> I, the bit I love about my job is being able to work with uh, different organizations, a combination of organizations on a constant rolling basis. Uh, I never fail to get attached to my current client and be like, oh, I'd like to be there forever. Can I go there? And then every time something new comes along, I'm reminded that I, I like the change and I, I like something fresh coming through. And I, I always talk about like the greatest privilege being able to take that knowledge and learning from one place to another and hopefully provide a cumulative benefit by spreading that wealth. And this is the last question. What would you say was the greatest experience you've had as far as an Accenture deployment was concerned? So it's really lovely when you launch actual things, right? So I think whenever we've launched something that I can go and show people, I worked on that. And like, weirdly for me as a scrum master and agile coach, I'd never make the things, right? (laughs) I was facilitating incredibly clever, talented people to do it. But launching products that people can then go and take joy from has been really, really amazing. So working on products for for UView, for Channel 4, for the BBC was lovely to be able to like show people. And like I still, when I'm training, I kind of pull up the BBC website. I'm like, my team made that bit. Like they, <laughs> a dingly dangly bell. Like I know the guy that the that deployed that thing. Very, very cool. Well, that's it. That was it for this episode of Dreams and Deadlines. Thank you so much for joining us today. Kit, I learned a lot. It was super fun talking about agile, about how to measure value and uh, the really quick fire questions at the end. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jenny. It was lovely to speak to you. Well, that's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.